convicted and handed a sentence like that, whether it's the actual death penalty or whether it's multiple uh, life sentences, we, we tend to assume, don't we, that whatever that person did was really bad. They must have committed a very serious crime. But we often fail to recognize, congregation, that in the eyes of God, our sins, your sins, and, and my sins are just as serious. We often fail to see that. We tend to minimize the seriousness of sin. We call them mistakes. Or we explain them away. Or maybe we shrug our shoulders at them and say, well, it's just something we have to, we have to live with. Or, or perhaps we, we, we hear about other people's sins and, and we gossip about them as if we are better than them instead of humbly bowing our knees to God and confessing and repenting of our own sins. There are countless ways, congregation, that we can, we can show our blindness to the seriousness of our own sins. But in the eyes of the Holy God, our sins, your and my sins, are not just mistakes. They are just as serious as the worst crime. That's why there is death. See, the, God's Word, the Bible teaches us that death is not natural. It's not how God designed things to be. In our own experience, your own experience confirms that death isn't natural. Death, congregation, is the consequence of sin. Death is the wages of sin, the Bible says. Not just of some sins, but of any and every sin. That's how serious my sin, that's how serious your sin is. Death, not just physical, spiritual death, but eternal death is the sentence of God for sin. That's how serious sin is. And left to ourselves, there is no hope of salvation. But that's what makes the passage that we've read this morning, Luke 23, verses 1 to 25, that's what makes this passage so amazing. Because this passage, congregation, tells us about Jesus the Holy, the Incarnate Son of God, God made flesh, being sentenced by Pontius Pilate. Sentenced not merely to death, but to the cross. That's what happens at the end of this passage in verses 23 and 24. And I want to just read that once more. Beginning at verse 23, we read that, And they, that's the chief priests, the rulers and the people, they were instant, or you could say they were pressing upon Pilate with loud voices, requiring, demanding that he, Jesus, might be crucified. And the voices of them and of the chief priests prevailed, and Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they required. It's a passage, beloved, that calls us and encourages us humbly to place all our confidence in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And this morning we want to look at this passage also in reference to the Bible's overall teaching about the sufferings and crucifixion of Christ. 
We read about that in the Lord's Day 15 of the Heidelberg Catechism, and I'll refer to that later, later in the sermon. And so our theme with God's help this morning is the incarnate Son of God sentenced to the cross. And under this theme, we'll consider three thoughts. First of all, what a convicting conclusion. Secondly, what a consequential decision. And thirdly, what a comforting revelation. Well, congregation, we talked about how trials go a few moments ago. They usually begin with, with, with the prosecution, with the accusers bringing forward the evidence for their accusations. And that's what happens here, especially in, in verses 1 and 2 of, of chapter 23. Just before this, very early in the morning, Good Friday morning, the Sanhedrin had their own trial of Jesus. We saw that last week. They had asked Jesus if he was the Christ, if he was the Son of God, and, and Jesus had basically said yes to, 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 to both those questions. And that was enough because they didn't believe. That was enough for them to condemn him. But you see, because they were under Roman rule, they could not kill him themselves. They had to get the Roman government, which, which most of them hated, to do it. They had to bring him to Pontius Pilate. And that's what they do. In verses 1 and 2, Luke writes this, And the whole multitude of them arose and led him unto Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. That's really the beginning, the beginning of Jesus' trial before Pilate. And what's very clear from Luke's account, congregation, is that Pilate's conclusion to the trial, his sentencing of Jesus to the cross, is so, such a convicting, such a convicting conclusion. You see, in the first place, Pilate's sentencing Jesus to the cross reveals the universal extent, the universal extent of man's natural hatred toward God. Luke brings this out in several ways. In, in verse 1, he notes the unity, the, the unity of the Jewish leaders of the Sanhedrin in bringing Jesus to Pilate and accusing him. The whole multitude of them arose and led him unto Pilate. And they began to accuse him. These were the religious leaders of God's people. These, they were the representatives of God's covenant people. And yet here they are united in, in their hatred of Jesus. They are united in their hatred of, of, God, of God made flesh. They are united in their determination to have him killed. Now Luke tells us later on in this chapter that one member of the council, Joseph of Arimathea, he, he didn't consent to what they had done. So we shouldn't think of that as there being no exceptions at all, but, but we need to recognize that even without exception, it's only because God, in His sovereign grace, had worked faith in Joseph's heart. Left to himself, Joseph would have, would have joined the others. The whole multitude of them brought Jesus to Pilate. The whole multitude of them accused Him. The whole multitude of them told lies about Him. We found this fellow perverting the nation. What a lie that was. They meant by that that, that that Jesus was trying to lead the nation away from its loyalty to Rome. You see, that's, that's the nature of their accusations because that, they know that the only way they're going to get Pilate to agree is, is, is by, by accusing him politically. But, but, 
Jesus wasn't trying to lead the nation away from its loyalty to Rome. He had never forbidden, he had never forbidden them to pay taxes to Caesar. In fact, if you look earlier in Luke, when they tried to trap him in his word by asking him if it was lawful, if it was lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. What, you remember, do you remember that story, what he told them? How he, he asked a, for a coin, right? Children, maybe you remember this story? He asked for a coin and he said, whose image is, is on this? And they said, well, it's Caesar's. And what did he say? Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto God what is God's. Jesus was not leading them away from loyalty to Caesar. Oh yes, he had claimed to be Christ a king. And Jesus will even confess that to Pilate. Yes, thou sayest I am a king. But he didn't claim to be king in the way they meant. Not as a political rebel, not as a, a revolutionary. That, that, that didn't matter to the Jewish leaders. The whole multitude of the Jewish leaders were determined to have the incarnate Son of God killed. No matter what. And as you read through the passage, we find, we find only that they, they get the people on their side. The crowds, the common people join them. And one of the points Luke is, is making through that is this. That simply this, that the Jewish leaders, the representatives of God's covenant people, the whole multitude were united in their hatred of him and in their hatred of God. Oh, they didn't say it like that. They wouldn't have admitted that. But that's what it comes down to. But they needed the cooperation of the Gentiles. They needed the cooperation of Rome. And that, that's why, as I mentioned, they bring Jesus to Pilate. Pilate was the Roman governor of Judea, right? He was a Roman governor. And we know from history he wasn't himself a very noble ruler, but, but he represented the best, as it were, of the Gentile world. He represented Rome with all its glory, all its civilization, all of its culture, all of its power, all of its reputation for justice and for fairness. And so as a representative then of the Gentile world, Pilate meets Jesus. He meets the Son of God. But it's clear as you go through this passage congregation that Pilate has no love for him. He has no love for God. Oh yes, he declares Jesus' innocence and he does try at least somewhat feebly. He tries to, to release him. But what's more important to Pilate than God is his own reputation, his own, his own position. And so when, when he declares him innocent the first time and, and the people raise a ruckus and say, well, he, he starts in Galilee. Well, he says, well, they're there, I can, I can pass him off to, to Herod. So he sends him to Herod and Herod and his soldiers, what do they do? They make fun of Jesus and they send him back to Pilate. And eventually, Pilate, he sentences Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, to the cross. The one whom he knows and, who, and whom he publicly declares had done no, nothing worthy of death. The point is, congregation, the point is that one of the points that Luke is showing us here is that the whole world, Jews and Gentiles, religious and pagan, the church as it were, and the ungodly world are represented here in Luke 23 and they are gathered together, as Peter will say later in Acts, they are gathered together against God's Son. 
united. The Jews cried out for Jesus to be crucified, and Pilate, the Gentile representative, cooperated. He sentenced Jesus to the cross. Man's natural hatred toward God is universal. There are no exceptions. Left to ourselves, congregation, we all hate God. Oh, we might not say it that way. We might not think that of ourselves even. Because our, our, our pride is too great, really. But it, but it shows. It, it, it's there. The question is not whether there, there has ever been hatred of God in our hearts. The question is this. Have you seen it? Have you seen it in your own self? Have you ever seen that hatred of God that exists in your own heart by nature left to yourselves? And has it burdened you? Has it burdened you? Has seeing it there convicted you of your desperate need for salvation? And of the hopelessness of of salvation in yourself or in any other human person? Has it convinced you of your desperate need of Jesus Christ for salvation? That's what this passage is seeking to show us. The whole world is in need of the salvation of God. You see, the incarnate Son of God being being sentenced to the cross reveals the universal extent of man's hatred toward God. But it also reveals, it also reveals the bottomless depth, the bottomless depth of man's hatred naturally toward God. You know, Luke brings this out by telling us, by telling us Pilate repeatedly, over and over again, declared the innocence of Jesus. That's the judge's verdict. Over and over. In verse 4, we're told that after questioning Jesus about the initial charges, Pilate, he said to the chief priests and to the people, I find no fault in this man. And in verse 14, after Jesus comes back from Herod, Pilate very officially and emphatically declares, he summons the people together and he emphatically declares Jesus' innocence. Ye have brought this man unto me as one that perverts the people, and behold, pay attention, I, having examined him before you, have found no fault in this man, touching those things whereof ye accuse him. No, nor yet Herod. For I sent you to him, and lo, behold, pay attention, nothing worthy of death is done unto him. Or in better English, nothing worthy of death has been done by him. In verse 22, when the people were urging him to crucify Jesus, Luke tells us that Pilate said unto them the third time, Why? Why? What evil has he done? I have found no cause of death in him. Pilate had found and he had clearly declared Jesus innocent. And yet the cry becomes fiercer. It becomes louder. It becomes more vehement. Away with this man! Crucify him! Crucify him! Until finally Pilate, despite knowing and having declared Jesus was innocent, gave sentence that it should be as they Required. Do you see the bottomless depth of man's hatred toward God? What a perversion of justice. 
There's never been a perversion of justice in a trial as here in this passage. The innocent, the incarnate Son of God, the holy and the just one was sentenced to the cross. How deep is man's natural hatred of God. So deep that it is willing to have his Son, in spite of his innocence, in spite of his holiness, sentenced to the cross. But also so deep, so deep, that it would even rather have a murderer than God's son. That's what happens when Pilate tries to please the Jews by suggesting that he chastise Jesus by scourging and then let him go. Since he usually let one Jewish prisoner go free at Passover time anyway, what do the people do? They refuse, don't they? Verse 18 tells us that instead, instead, when, when Pilate presented this proposal, instead they all cried out saying, Away with this man and release unto us Barabbas. And who is Barabbas? Well, Luke tells us. He was in prison, uh, in prison for two things. Sedition, causing a rebellion, and murder. And Luke doesn't just say that once. It's interesting, he, he says that twice. He, he's brings, trying to bring this across. In verse 25, after Pilate sentences Jesus, he tells us that Pilate released unto him, he doesn't just say Barabbas, but him that for sedition and murder was cast into prison, whom they had desired. Do you see? Do you see? I ask you again, do you see the depth of man's natural hatred of God? And we're tempted to say, we're tempted to say, wow, that's not us. That's not me. I would never rather have a murderer than God's son. Children, can you imagine that? Asking for a murderer instead of Jesus? We would never do that, we say. But don't we? Don't you do that when you choose to live a life of sin? And you refuse to embrace Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. Don't we do that when, when we value our own reputation more than God's? Don't we do that, congregation, even, even sometimes as believers? Don't we do that in a sense when we refuse to humble ourselves before God and confess and repent of our sins? Don't we do that when we choose to sin and when we choose to continue in sin? Isn't that really saying we would rather have a murderer? We would rather have that murderer from the beginning, Satan himself, than God's son, God made flesh. I ask you, isn't that what sin is? Do you see how serious sin is? I fear we don't see it enough, congregation. I fear it in my own heart. What a convicting conclusion Pilate's sentence on Jesus is. It tells us, doesn't it? it doesn't, doesn't it tell us how hopeless and helpless we all are in and of ourselves? And in that way, in that way, congregation, it is calling us. 
It is calling us, us to put away any confidence in ourselves, to put away any confidence in man, and to place it all instead, to place all our hope and confidence in this Jesus. In Him alone for salvation. But maybe you say, can I really do that? Is there really hope for me? Is there really hope for me if I cast myself on him? Well, that brings us to our second thought as we consider the incarnate Son of God sentenced to the cross. And that thought is this. What a consequential decision. When Pilate gave sentence, congregation, when he decided, as verse 24 reads, that it should be as the Jews require. That Jesus should be crucified. That decision, that sentence was extremely significant. In fact, I would submit to you, congregation, that Pilate's decision in verse 24, his sentencing of Jesus to the cross, is one of the most, if not the most significant or consequential decision in Scripture. You see, in the first place, this decision, this decision to have Jesus crucified, what did it mean? It meant not only intense suffering for Jesus, it meant his death. To be sentenced to the cross was to be sentenced to death. Crucifixion was a Roman method of execution. They would execute the worst criminals by crucifixion. The person to be crucified was usually scourged first. We know that happened to Jesus from the other Gospels. And then at the place of crucifixion, the, the person was stripped and nailed to the cross. And then the soldiers would hoist the cross into a hole dug for it. And you can imagine that person hanging there, nails and, and that cross falling into the ground with, a, with a, a jolt. You can imagine how that would have felt. And the person would hang there naked with his feet four or five feet above the ground. And he would die slowly, painfully, shamefully, and certainly. Pilate's decision secured, from a human pers perspective, it secured the death of Jesus. The death of the holy and incarnate Son of God. And we say, what an awful consequence. Yes, it was. It was awful. It highlights again, doesn't it, the, the wickedness of, of that decision. To sentence Jesus to the cross in spite of his innocence. To sentence him to death. But, but there's something deeper going on here. Pilate was fully responsible for his decision. But his decision, congregation, his decision wasn't outside God's purpose. It wasn't outside God's will. God wasn't watching from heaven and wringing his hands, as it were, wondering how to help his son. No, beloved, Pilate's decision to sentence Jesus to the cross was exactly in line, exactly in line with God's will and plan. We cannot fully understand that, but it was. That's why, that's why Jesus submitted to it. Jesus knew this is what had had to happen. You know, Luke tells us, Luke tells us of at least four times, four times during his ministry that Jesus foretold his disciples, he foretold his suffering to his disciples. And I want to read just what he said in, in the last one in Luke 18, verses 31 to 33. 
He said this, Behold, he said, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, and shall be mocked and spitefully entreated, and spitted on, and they shall scourge him, and put him to death. And the third day he shall rise again. The point is, congregation, the point is that Pilate's decision, decision and the death of Jesus that it secured was, was the fulfillment. It was the fulfillment of God's will. It was part of God's foreordained plan. What plan? His plan to save sinners. And congregation, that means there's hope. There's hope for you and for me. There's hope for every sinner who looks away from himself or herself and who looks to Jesus Christ. There's hope because Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, being sentenced to the cross, fulfilled God's purpose and plan of salvation. That's what his being sentenced is all about. It's about the same thing all of his sufferings are about. The answer to question 37 in the Catechism explains this very beautifully. I'm not going to to expound that answer, really, but let me just read it. What do you understand, he says, that the Catechism asks, by the words he suffered? And the answer he gives is this, that he, all the time that he lived on earth, but especially at the end of his life, sustained in body and soul the wrath of God against the sins of all mankind. That so by his passion, so by his suffering, as the only propitiatory sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice, he might redeem our body and soul from everlasting damnation and obtain for us the favor of God, righteousness, and eternal life, life, life for people who are under the sentence of God's sentence of death. This is what Christ being sentenced to the cross is all about. It's about him sustaining in body and soul, willingly sustaining the holy wrath of God against the sins of all mankind, willingly becoming the atoning sacrifice that so he might reconcile sinners to God. Pilate knew nothing. He knew nothing about this when he gave out that sentence, but God did. He was working out everything according to his purpose and and will and plan. And that means there's hope. That means there's hope for every single person here this morning. There's hope, not just slight hope, not not just weak hope, but strong hope, sure hope, firm hope for sinners who cast themselves on Jesus for salvation. Doesn't even the release of Barabbas teach us that. You know, Luke takes special care. He takes special care to mention the release of Barabbas as one of the consequences of Pilate's decision. In verse 24, we read that Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they required. And and then in verse 25, there's a consequence. And he released unto them him that for sedition and murder was cast into prison, whom they had desired. But he delivered Jesus to their will. Do you understand what's happening here, congregation? Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, being sentenced to the cross, 
secures the release of a rebel and a murderer who should himself have been crucified. Pilate's decision makes Jesus the substitute for a rebel and a murderer. Children, maybe you sometimes have substitutes, a substitute teacher, right? The teacher is sick, so they call in a substitute, somebody to stand in her place or his place. That's what's happening. Listen to how J.C. Ryle explains it. Two persons were before him, and he must needs release one of the two. Pilate must needs release one of the two. The one was a sinner against God and man, a malefactor stained with many crimes. The other was the holy, harmless, and undefiled Son of God in whom there was no fault at all. And yet Pilate condemns the innocent prisoner and he acquits the guilty. He orders Barabbas to be set free and delivers Jesus to be crucified. And then Ryle goes on to say that this exchange, the exchange of Jesus for Barabbas, points us to what the Lord Jesus was actually doing here in submitting to Pilate's sentence. He was acting, congregation, as a substitute for sinners. As a substitute for sinners. He was submitting to bearing the sins of many upon himself so that sinners, sinners like Barabbas, sinners like you and like me, yes, sinners who are rebels even and murderers, could be freed from God's righteous judgments. That's what was happening. Paul puts it this way in, in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For God has made him, his son Jesus, to be sin for us, him who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You see what a consequential decision Pilate's sentence was. A decision foreordained by God and accepted, accepted by his son. And that's why in answer to the question, why did Jesus, the son of God, suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge? The catechism declares that he, being innocent and yet condemned by a temporal, by an earthly judge, might thereby free us from the severe judgment of God to which we were exposed. And Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they required. What a consequential decision. Do you see that? Doesn't it show us? Doesn't it show us what an amazing, what an almighty, what a willing, what a gracious Savior God we have? And doesn't it give you and me and every sinner like Barabbas here this morning and every sinner out there, doesn't it give us, no matter what sins we're guilty of, so much encouragement to humbly place all our confidence in Jesus alone for salvation? Not just once, but every single day. Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday, every day of the week this week. But can I really be sure? Can I really be sure that just by looking to Jesus, just by trusting in Him alone and nothing else, I am saved? Yes. Yes, praise God, you can be sure. And this leads us briefly to our third thought under our theme. The incarnate, sentence, the incarnate God sentenced to the cross. We've considered this act or this event as a convicting conclusion and a consequential decision. But thirdly and lastly, what a comforting, what a comforting revelation it also is. 
And here I want to turn our attention to the significance, to the meaning of the cross. Luke doesn't tell us explicitly in this passage, but the other scriptures do. And, and what they teach us, congregation, shows us that the revelation that Jesus was sent us to the cross here in our passage is so full of comfort. It reassures us that he bore God's curse. Question and answer 39 of the Catechism points this out. Is there anything more in his being crucified than if he had died some other death? And the believing child of God says, yes. Yes, there is. For thereby I am assured. I am assured that he took on him the curse which lay upon me. For the death of the cross was accursed of God. You see, being sentenced to the cross... Jesus was not merely surrendering himself to death. He was taking God's curse upon himself. God's curse? What curse? The curse that God pronounces on everyone, on everyone who does not keep all the words of his law. We've heard that law this morning. We've heard the Ten Commandments. And you know you haven't kept that law. If you think you have, you're deceiving yourself and you're making God a liar. And that means, congregation, that if you are not trusting Jesus Christ, God's curse lies upon you. Some people say, oh, that's harsh, that's mean. No, that's what God's word says. Here's the thing. The revelation that Jesus Christ who alone kept God's law perfectly. The revelation that he was sentenced to the cross tells us that he took God's curse upon himself. You see, the Bible in Deuteronomy 30, 21, verse 23, tells us that God's curse lay upon everyone who was hanged on a tree. In congregation, maybe children, I can ask you, what is a cross made from? What is a cross made from? It's made out of wood, right? It's made of a tree. And so that means that God's curse was laid upon Jesus because he was sentenced to hang upon the tree of the cross. He, as Paul says in Galatians 3, verse 13, was made a curse for us, for sinners. And in that way, he has redeemed, he has delivered, he has freed us, he has freed every sinner who looks to him from God's curse in the law. And that means, that means, congregation, that looking to him Trusting in Him, you can be sure. You can be sure of your salvation. You can be sure, dear trembling believer, this morning. You see so much in yourself that makes you question. You see so much in yourself that makes you fearful. You see so many sins. You see so many failures. You see so many doubts. But your salvation doesn't depend on yourself. It depends on Jesus. And he was sentenced to the cross. He took God's curse upon himself. And that means that you are no longer under his curse. What a comforting revelation that is. It also reassures us that he obtained full salvation. Because in taking that curse upon himself, he also obtained full salvation for all who belong to him by faith. For all who look to him. He obtained all the blessings of salvation, no matter how weakly you may be looking to him. He obtained all the blessings. He completely satisfied the just wrath of God against the sins of all mankind. And that means that there's nothing more that needs to be done for salvation. 
for the salvation of sinners. That's the gospel, beloved. That's the gospel. Let us never forget that. Never forget that. In the revelation that he was sentenced to the cross, Luke is telling us, Luke is telling us, as it were, and really the Holy Spirit through Luke, in Christ, in Christ is everything you need. In Christ is redemption of body and soul from everlasting condemnation. In Christ is restoration of the favor of God. In Christ is perfect, complete righteousness. In Christ is eternal life. The life of knowing God. The life of enjoying God. The life of fellowshipping with God in love. Sentenced. Sentenced to the cross. Jesus, the Son of God. How reassuring. As one hymn writer wrote, guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement. Can it be? Hallelujah. What a Savior. Yes. Yes, full atonement. Because he took the curse, because he was sentenced to the cross. That's what gives you congregation. That's what gives you fresh courage and strength and motivation to love him and to serve him every day of your life. Have you come to Jesus Christ? Oh, Jesus being sentenced to the cross tells us that he has done everything. If you have not come, then come. Come and put all your hope, all your confidence in him alone for your salvation. You see, that's the only way. That's the only way to be delivered from the sentence of death that we are under by nature. There are only two ways that sentence can be fulfilled either by yourself or by Christ. That's what it comes down to. Then don't reject Christ. But cast yourself with all your, your fears, your concerns, your doubts. Cast yourself on Him. Put your confidence in Him. Trust in Him. And then you'll be able to say, also with that same hymn writer, when He comes, our glorious King, all his ransomed home to bring, then anew this song will sing. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Amen.